brought, uh, who he wants to be here this morning, and also um, when stuff like this happens, it's easy to get so preoccupied and forget that what we're going to see this morning is actually what we need. Um, it's these truths um, that we need to be reminded of and, uh, and refresh and, and meditate on. So I believe this is God's word um, for us today um, with his, in his sovereign plan. So go to John chapter 3. We're going to finish John 3 this morning. Finally, after, I think this is lesson number 7, so we've gone kind of slow through John 3, but it's been um, very good. So let's pass these out here. John 3, and um, you remember John 3 began with the story of Nicodemus, um, this narrative about Jesus having this conversation with Nicodemus on the new birth, and then John puts the brakes on right after this Nicodemus story, and he sort of zooms in and gives his own commentary on um, two astonishing truths, on the astonishing truth that God would send his son um, to be the savior of the world, and then on the astonishing rejection of the son by the world. Um, So that was sort of like the first half of John 3, Nicodemus' story, John's commentary. And then last time we were together, John picked up his story again. Jesus goes to the Judean countryside and begins his baptism ministry alongside John the Baptist's John the Baptist's baptism ministry. And the point of that section is really to highlight the supremacy of Christ's purification in contrast to John's person. And now, this morning, John's going to put the brakes on again and going to give another section of commentary. Almost everyone agrees that this is probably the words of John the Gospel writer. Uh, We're going to be in verses um, 31 through 36. So what we've gotten is narrative, story, and then commentary by John, and then we get narrative, and then commentary again by John. And that's what we are going to look at this morning. Um, I want to point one more thing out here. In, uh, in, in chapter 3, we've seen two really predominant themes that have gone through John 3. And that's the theme of purification. Remember, we've talked a lot about purification. And there's also the theme of revelation. Christ has come, and he's the supreme form of God's purification for sins, and he is God's supreme revelation to mankind. Uh, We've seen purification all the way back to the water changed to wine. Uh, The first sign he does, he talks about purification. That's part of what the new birth is. Purification was referred to back in John the Baptist's baptism. Jesus has come with the superior form. There's also this theme of revelation. John 1.1, in the beginning was the what? The word. And the primary emphasis there is he's the supreme ultimate revelation of God to man. John chapter 3, Jesus talked about this. Um, same thing as well. We'll, we'll see that. Um, so this morning, we're going we're gonna to sort of see how these two themes sort of come together in this conclusion John gives in John 3. The supremacy of Christ's purification and John and, and Jesus' revelation. Um, and since he is both of these things, the ultimate purification, ultimate revelation, he is the centerpiece. He's the one around whom everything will center for, for the rest of eternity. So this morning we're going to get three inescapable facets of Christ's supremacy. 
which must be heeded by all. Three inescapable facets of Christ's supremacy, which must be heeded by all. The first facet of Christ's supremacy is the supremacy of Christ's origin. Look at verse 31. The supremacy of Christ's origin. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So what we got here in this verse, it's like a sandwich. The, the first and last line are about Christ, and the center line is about mankind. So it's like the bread on the two sides and then the meat in the middle. Um, and the main point of this verse is that one's origin, where he comes from, determines his character, determines what kind of person he will be. So let's look at what it says about Christ first. His heavenly origin implies that he is supreme. It says that he comes from above, and he comes from heaven. They both mean the same thing. It literally means he comes from God. He comes from God's presence. And John says, therefore, he is above all. All can mean all people, or it can mean all things, and it probably means both. He is supreme to all things. As the incarnate word, he is above and superior to all people and all creation because he existed with God from eternity. But, but why is that important? Why is John bringing that up? Well, we're going to see that in just a minute, but first look at what he contrasts. Look at the, the meat of the sandwich, if you will. The one coming, the one who bees, who, who is from the earth, belongs to the earth. That's what he says. So what does it mean to be from the earth? And who is he talking about? Is he talking about someone in particular here? Who is this from the earth? Well, in the Gospel of John, the word world, the world, the word earth is different from the word world. World is almost always negative. It always uh, refers to the rebellious system of this world. The earth is, is neutral. It just simply means the place that mankind lives. It's this creation. Um, the earth represents that which is created. So what does it mean, the one from the earth? I think it simply refers to every single person that's ever been created, that's ever existed from this world. Everyone has their origins in this place we call the earth. That's John's point. So what implications does John draw from this? Well, look what he says. He says the one that's from the earth, the first thing he says is that mankind's origin implies that he's limited and finite. He says everyone from the earth is literally from the earth. So that sounds kind of redundant, right? So it's like, thanks, John, that, that's really helpful. Everyone that from the earth is from the earth. Um, so what is he saying here? <clears throat> His point's clear. Everyone who has their ultimate origin in the earth, every one of us, is characterized by the earth. Well, what is that? You are small, insignificant, limited, finite. Just as Christ's origin was based, uh, was the basis of his supreme status, our origin, as those from the earth, is the basis of our finite, limited status. 
So in what way is mankind limited? In what way are we finite? Well, there's many ways, uh, but John gives us one of them. Look at the, what he says in verse 31. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Mankind's origin implies that his speech is limited and finite. So one's character is determined by his origin, where he comes from, and now that expresses itself in his speech. It expresses itself in what he says. And you know this principle well. Where you come from affects your speech. Some of you in here have accents. Actually, all of us have accents. We just don't realize it. Um, in China, uh, I cannot very well understand people in Meimei's province. I go to Beijing, I'm comfortable. I can understand 95%. I go to her hometown, it goes down to 45%. I mean, it's very strong. Um, and even Chinese, those from northern China, sometimes cannot even understand a word people from southern China speak. Um, where you come from affects your speech. That's what John tells us. tells us here. Those who come from the earth, John says, speak from the earth. What does that mean? It means that mankind who's from the earth is finite and limited, and therefore his speech is finite and limited. That's his point. Our speech is earthly. In other words, on his own, man has absolutely no ability to discover or speak ultimate realities about God. Um, think back to our study in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 30, Agur. What did he say in his confession? He was looking for wisdom, and he, he confessed, Who has ascended into heaven and come down? Who has gone into the very presence of God to receive absolute truth and knowledge about God and life and this world and everything there is to know and bring it back down to us so that we can know how we ought to live. Who's done that? The answer is absolutely no one. We are earthly. We are finite. We are limited. And this is what made the Old Covenant law of Moses such a gift. It was a gift. Um, Deuteronomy 30 says, you don't have to go over to the other side of the ocean or go up to heaven to, to find God's, God's word. Right? He says it, it's, it's near you. It's in your mouth. It's, it's on your heart so that you can do it. In other words, we need revelation. We are limited. We're finite. God must speak to us. And in the Old Testament, he did it through mediators. He did it through Moses. He did it through prophets. He did it through John the Baptist. Um, God has spoken. But the point we're making here is that Moses and the prophets and John the Baptist were still men. They were finite. They were earthly they were God's appointed mediators to bring his truth, but they were earthy people. They didn't ascend to heaven to get this revelation. God had to communicate it to them. And therefore, they and themselves are limited and finite. Even John the Baptist speaks from the earth. He's just a man. And all of this prepares us now for this next facet of the supremacy of Christ. Owing to Christ's heavenly origin... He is not only superior to mankind in his person, but his speech is superior to anyone on the earth. Look at verses 32 to 35. We get the supremacy of Christ's witness. Supremacy of Christ's witness, verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. 
Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This is the supremacy of Christ's witness. Now before we unpack these verses, go back with me to the Nicodemus discourse, verses 11 to 13, and listen to how familiar and how similar these verses are to what we just read. It's very, very similar. Chapter 3, verse 11 to 13. This is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen. Almost exactly the same as what we just read. But you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so now, in John chapter 32, verse 33, John is emphasizing and explaining what Jesus said back then in a bit more detail. Um, Jesus is from above, and because he's from above, he has authority to teach about a birth that comes where? From above, right? The new birth, that's exactly what Jesus said about it. And not only does he teach about it, but he accomplishes everything that's needed to make it a reality. Um, no earthling can do that. Because of Jesus' origin, he is God's ultimate and final source of revelation to mankind. You hear Hebrews 1 in here? You know what Hebrews 1 says? Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the what? By the prophets, earthly men. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, the point of this is not to diminish the Old Testament um, or the importance of its truths, but to highlight the supremacy of Christ over it. Jesus doesn't contradict the Old Testament. He fulfills the Old Testament. He's greater than it. If the Old Testament prophets, who were mere earthlings, were messengers of God's revelation to mankind, then the one who comes from the very presence of God is himself God's ultimate revelation. So that's the point. So let's unpack this here. Christ is supreme because of his origin, and therefore he brings supreme revelation. So mankind speaks from the earth, finite and limited, but Jesus speaks as one from heaven with full divine authority. Well, why? Look at verse 32. It says he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. So why does he speak with divine ultimate authority? It's because he bears witness. He has eyewitness testimony. So it's very similar to verse 11. Go back to verse 11 with me. Chapter 3. <clears throat> Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Jesus has come to bear witness about the things that he has heard and seen from God. Jesus testifies and bears witness. This is a very significant word in John. Uh, we've already seen it. John the Baptist bears witness, and the disciples will bear witness. And Jesus Christ here 
bears witness. In other words, he is an eyewitness. He has eyewitness testimony. Eyewitnesses were and are still very important, aren't they? For history and for our justice system. Um, they're very significant. Eyewitness testimonies are given the most weight, right? Because they've experienced the thing firsthand. It's not just hearsay. Um, they're reliable. They should be taken seriously. And that's exactly what John says Jesus is. He, is, he has eyewitness testimony. So what are some of the things that Jesus has seen and heard from God the Father um, that he has come to testify to? We're still over at verse 11. Look down at verse 12. We get um, an idea here from the context. Look at verse 12. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And if you remember when we studied this passage, we said the immediate context explains that earthly things refers to things that take place on the earth, which is what? The new birth. Um, that's what Jesus is talking about. Earthly things is things that must take place here, and heavenly things refer to things that are coming. The kingdom, the resurrection, the judgment. And Jesus says he has authority to declare those things because he brings eyewitness testimony from God the Father about those things. What else? What else might be included in this that Jesus has seen and heard from God the Father? Think John 3.16, God's love. John 3, 14 to 17, God's plan of redemption and the uplifted Son of Man. The secret workings of the Spirit, he blows where he wishes. The condition of mankind, lovers of darkness, all these things no one can reveal to us. But Jesus comes with eyewitness testimony, hearing the very words of God and declaring them to us. That's what he has come to testify to. Now, I think when we think about the purpose of Jesus' coming, we often just think in terms of his um, death and resurrection. So why did Jesus come to earth? Well, he came to earth to die for our sins, right? Um, and that would be the, sort of the first emphasis, purification, uh, that John is highlighting. But we often leave out this other purpose of his coming, which is revelation. He's come for revelation. Flip over to John 18. Jesus is talking to Pilate here. It's very interesting what he says. John 18, verse 37. The very famous words here. John 18, 37. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world. What is that? You're expecting him to say, to die for sins, right? That's not what he says, although it's true. For this purpose, I've come into the world. To do what? To bear witness to the truth. That is a massive aspect of Christ's coming. Why has he come? To bear witness as the final, ultimate witness to what he has seen and heard from God the Father of truth to mankind. He's come for revelation, and he's God's final word to man. Go back to John 3. How can we summarize what we've seen so far? Jesus, he and only he, is God's final source of revelation and purification because he's above all. Why is he above all? He's above all because he's existed for eternity in the presence of God. And so if he's come to testify to truth and if he is supreme, then man's response is of utmost importance. How we respond to him. 
And if the supremacy of Christ were not enough, now the weight of man's response is now heightened by Christ's connection to the Father. Look at the very next line. It's not only that Christ is supreme, it's that he is connected to the Father. This is the next point. It's owing to his inseparable connection to the Father. So look at these two responses in verses 32b through 33a. So he bears witness to what he's seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is truth. Despite his origin from heaven and his character above all, and his credible testimony, what he has seen and heard, astonishingly, most people do not receive him. Mind-blowing. Receive is another word in John for to believe. To receive means to believe, and to believe means to receive. These people respond to his witness with unbelief. And Nicodemus is exhibit A, right? Jesus declares to him, and what does Nicodemus do? He stiff arms his revelation. This pattern is exactly what we see back in verse 11. So we go back to verse 11. It was exactly the same words. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. See it again? And John here says no one receives his testimony. So the point is not to tell us why they don't receive his testimony. John's already done that back in verse 19. Remember, they love the darkness and they don't come to light. That's not what he's doing here. The point here is to simply show us why this is so significant and also tell us that this is the default response of mankind. No one receives his testimony, John says. Now, John loves hyperbole. Clearly, he doesn't mean that no one without exception receives his testimony. Look at the very next line, verse 32 and verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony. So some people do receive it. Um, and he's, he's already done this very same thing. Remember back in the prologue, verse 11, he came to his own, and his own did what? They did not receive him, but to as many as received him. So John loves to do this thing. No one receives him, and yet some people receive him. So why? What is he, what is he up to here? Why would he do this? His point is that despite Christ's origin and authoritative witness, most do not believe in him. Almost no one believes in him, is the point. In other words, man's disbelief doesn't discredit Christ's testimony. Christ is not on trial. <laughs> Mankind is on trial. And astonishingly, most do not respond to Christ and to his witness. Before we move on, I just want to think about the, this, this line a little bit more. No one receives his testimony. There's a lot we could say about it. I just want to give you one thing to sort of meditate on. We should not be surprised at the unbelief of unbelievers. We should be grieved. We should pray. We should share the gospel. We shouldn't be surprised at strangers, friends, family members who are unbelievers. We should recognize why that's the case. Lovers of darkness rather than lovers of light. Um, and we should recognize the only hope to change it. What is it? We've already seen it in John. What must happen? The Spirit has to blow 
where he wishes. And God has to create a heart that does the truth for them to receive it. But I think John's point here is that the default setting, apart from a divine work in the heart by God, is I'm not receiving this thing. So don't be surprised, but go to God in prayer. Depend on him to do the work. He must do it. No one receives his testimony, John says. Unless God does something. That's where he goes next. Some actually do respond. He says, but whoever receives his testimony... Again, John's point in this section is not to tell us why some do and don't. He's already done that. His purpose is simply to tell us why these responses are so significant. And that takes us to our next sub-point there. Receiving or rejecting Christ is significant because in doing so, you inevitably make a statement about God, especially God's truthfulness and reliability. Christ cannot be disconnected from God. Your statement about Christ translates into a statement about God. Look at the rest of verse 33. The one that receives Jesus' testimony seals that God is true, or sets his seal that God is true. Now what does that mean? I'm sure you're all familiar with the process of sealing a document. We still do it today. Um, you get an important, important letter in the mail from the government. Um, and that day it was used with wax or clay, and often you'd use a signet ring to place a stamp on it. Um, it was meant to authenticate or testify to the validity of the document, that yes, this is authentic, this is true, the contents are reliable. You'd stamp it with your seal. So what does it mean, then, to seal something about God? What is that? It's kind of a strange way of talking about it. Well, the point, clearly, is not that we add to God's credibility, that man's testimony or man's confession makes God more credible. That's not what he's saying. The point is simply that this inseparable connection between what you do with Jesus and what you do with God. That's the point. Um... Those who respond to Jesus inevitably say something about the character of God. You place a stamp of approval or disapproval on God. Um, those who respond to Jesus' words are essentially declaring God to be truthful and reliable. And to reject Jesus' words is to call God a liar. That's a very strong language. Listen to 1 John. If you want to flip there, you can. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5.10 Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God bore concerning his Son. That is strong, strong language. There's an inseparable connection between Jesus and and the Father. To reject one is to reject the other. <clears throat> to receive the one is to receive the other. Muslims say that they believe in Jesus. They are, that they believe in God and that they don't believe in Jesus as the Bible describes him. Jews say they believe in Yahweh, but they do not believe Jesus was the Messiah. Secular people believe in the notion of God, but they don't treat Jesus as the Bible teaches them. He's just a good moral teacher. Nominal Christians believe in God, but they don't submit to Christ or depend on his 
work in repentance and faith. And the point of this passage is that none of them believes or calls God true, even though they all say they do. Use Nicodemus. As long as he stiff arms Jesus' words about his heart condition and the need for the new birth, he is calling God a liar. Man cannot declare God good and truthful until he declares the Son good and truthful. You can't separate the two, is the point. There's an inseparable connection between the two. Well, why? Why is that? Well, John gives us two reasons. It's because the Son speaks the words of God. Look at verse 34. For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. John's point is that Jesus and the Father are so intimately connected that what you do with Jesus is what you do with God. Well, why? It's because Jesus speaks the very words of God. And you know this principle, the press secretary of the United States who comes out, and if you don't believe, or if you say that press secretary is not telling the truth, who are you accusing? You're accusing the president of the United States. Why? Because he or she simply represents him. They, they, they simply repeat the words of the, of the president. D.A. Carson said, Jesus so completely says and does all that God says and does, and only what God says and does, that to believe Jesus is to believe God. Conversely, not to believe Jesus is to call God a liar. And we could go to a few passages here. We don't have time. Look those up in your, uh, in your free time. And you might be thinking, okay, Michael, I see your point, but couldn't people legitimately say that they just weren't convinced that Jesus was that? I mean, can't they say, yeah, I believe God is true, I'm just not convinced Jesus is really telling us the truth. I, I'm just not convinced Jesus is really that. Um, to use our example of the uh, press secretary, I believe in the, the, the character of the president. I just think the press secretary is being dishonest. Can't people make that excuse? And when we get to chapter 5, Jesus will absolutely destroy that excuse and that argument. It doesn't work. It falls apart. But the point of this passage here is not to prove that. The point of this passage is not to prove that Jesus is the exact divine representative of God. It simply assumes it. The point of this passage is simply to declare that this is the case and why how we respond to Jesus is so important. So we're going to see that um, there's much proof that that is so. So Jesus not only speaks the very words that the Father gives him, he also possesses the full measure of God's Spirit. Look at the end of verse 34. He whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now the question here is, who is giving the Spirit to whom? Um, it's kind of ambiguous. I think the context is very clear that this is the Father giving the Spirit to the Son. You can see a parallel in verse 35. The Father then gives him all things. It's clear the Father's doing the giving here. So how is it that Jesus speaks the very words of God? Well, it's because God gave the Spirit without measure to him. In the Old Testament, God gave his Spirit to prophets and messengers to enable them and authenticate them for their mission. 
D.A. Carson again said, Throughout redemptive history, God spoke to his people through accredited messengers. Each received that measure of the Spirit that was required for his or her task. Later Jewish writings would say that even the Holy Spirit resting on the prophets does so by weight, by measure. One prophet speaking one book of prophecy and another speaking two books. In other words, in times past, God's messengers had a limited portion of the Spirit. Um, enabled them to communicate part of God's revelation. Maybe they had one book. If you're lucky as a prophet, you had two books. Uh, but they only had part of the Spirit, and so they only had part of the revelation. The point here is the Father has given the Spirit without measure to his Son. And so he has far surpassed any Old Testament prophet. And he has the entirety of God's revelation. That's why he speaks the word of God, and that's why to reject him is to reject the Father. Before we move on, just look at the Trinitarian focus of this verse. You have the whole Trinity here, right? It's not for measure that the Father gave the Spirit to the Son. Throughout John, we're going to get these little glimpses into the inner workings of the Trinity. It's amazing. Um, the Father gives the Spirit to the Son. The Son relies on the Spirit for his words and ministry. The Spirit's goal is to glorify the Son. The Son seeks to glorify the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. And the, the, the Trinity is united, this, this happy fellowship from eternity. It's just, it's just mind-blowing. And um, reminds me of the, the words in the song, God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. That's what you see here. It's absolutely glorious. We'll look at verse 35. The supremacy of Christ is also owing to God's gift of all things. So he's not only given him the Spirit, he's given him all things, it says. The Father's given the Son all things. It refers to the entire universe, and all things are in his hand. He has authority over all things. And the Father gives to the Son throughout the Gospel of John. You can look up those references there in your outline. The Father has given the Son the Spirit without measure, therefore he speaks the words of God. And now the Father gives all things to the Son, and therefore he rules over all things. So the Son is the ultimate prophet of God, and he is the ultimate king. And he also accomplishes purification, which makes him what? The ultimate priest prophet, priest, and king of Jesus Christ. But why does the Father give it? Look what he says. The Father loves the Son. It's his profound love for the Son. Again, we catch this glimpse of the inner workings of the Trinity, this profound love which united the Trinity from eternity past. And I wish we had, we had time. We're running out of time. Look, look over to a couple of these. Look over at um, chapter 5, verse 20. Really quick. Let me just read a few of these. It's all through John. John 5, 20. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. Chapter 8, verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. God loves his son. And it's from this eternal fountain of love 
this happy fellowship of the Trinity that God's love overflows unto us. Love gives, right? We see this here. Father loved the Son, and what did he do? He gave. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave. Love gives. And what's so amazing here is that he loved the world so much that he gave his Son, whom he loves more than the world, <laughs> to die as a sacrificial offering. Now figure that out. How does that work? I have no clue. Another commentator said, If the Father gave up the Son whom he loved above all to death on a cross, how great must be his love for us and for the world. Just as the Spirit was the immeasurable gift of the Father to his Son, so the Son is God's immeasurable gift to the world. So Christ is supreme. He's supreme as God's witness. He's supreme because of origin. Now finally, verse 36, the supremacy of Christ's centrality. If Jesus is all this, and he is, then one's response to him is of utmost importance. Now that Jesus has come into the world, man cannot relate to God except through him. It all goes through him. The way man treats the Son is the way he treats the Father. And so Christ is supreme. And that he is central to all. Now that Messiah has come, nothing can go untouched. Nothing can go unaffected by his supremacy. And so this is the, the summary of this whole chapter. So let's read the verse. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So look at two things here. The first is that there are only two responses that revolve, that center around the Son. Some believe, and some, what does it say? You would expect it to say disbelieve. What does it say? They, they disobey. That's interesting. You would expect believe versus disbelieve, or obey versus disobey. So what can we say here? I think the point is that true faith involves a kind of submission. If you truly believe that Jesus is this, what are you going to do? You're going to obey him. You're going to submit to his words. And it also means that unbelief is tantamount to rebellion. The gospel comes with a command. Jesus says, this is the work of God. This is the work God demands that you believe. To disbelieve is to rebel. Next, there are two outcomes that center around him, eternal life and eternal judgment. Notice what it says. Whoever believes has, present tense, has right now eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son, future, will not see life, but the wrath of God, present tense, remains on him. So what's going on here? I like how D.A. Carson said it. The age to come can no longer be set off absolutely from the present age. Now that Jesus the Messiah has come, believers already enjoy eternal life that will be consummated in the resurrection of their bodies at the parousia. Parousia means the return of Christ. Unbelievers stand under the looming wrath of God that will be consummated in their resurrection and condemnation. In other words, the future now has broken into the present. With the coming of the Messiah, the future has already begun. Through faith, we experience the eternal life that we will experience for the rest of eternity. 
And it begins in the new birth. And unbelievers, by rejection of the Son, experience presently the looming wrath of God, which will be consummated in the resurrection of judgment, the eternal damnation. What shall ultimately be of each person has already begun. And it's based on what you do with the Son. That's what it comes down to. And therefore, he is central. He's the hinge on which everything turns, on which everything centers. And that's why he is supreme. And that's what this passage is telling us. So Christ is supreme because of his origin. Therefore, that leads to him being supreme in his witness, greater than any Old Testament prophet. In line with them, fulfills them, and yet inseparably connected with the Father. And now he's supreme in his centrality over all things. So it's quite a conclusion to this, this chapter. It's weighty, but very glorious. Any questions or comments? What do you think? How should this be affecting us, maybe, as we go from here? Any questions about this? Anything you've noticed? Uh, I, well, yeah. Um, not really that I noticed, but I think about it. Like, about people that, that believe It makes me think of my friend who, um, her husband, like, was a pastor, and, you know, obviously you would think he was believing, yeah. right? And all of a sudden, he just kind of mm. had a turn atheist on mm. her, and then left the whole thing. So, yeah. like, I, when I was really looking at this passage, it kind of made me think about that. Yeah. Like, so, was that, like, just... Yep. You know, him put it on show. I mean, you know, like, because mm -hmm. I think that if you're a person is truly believing and yep. truly faithful, um, that wouldn't happen. Yeah, that's right. I think that's one of the one of one of the purposes of John. Remember back right. all these people are coming to Jesus, they're believing, and it says Jesus is not believing them because he sees right to their hearts. None of us can see to the heart. We don't know. Um, but one of the things John teaches us in this gospel is that faith works itself out in perseverance. Um, if you continue in my word, you're, you're truly my disciple. Yep. And so there's a thing of true versus false faith, and it looks good a lot of times um, on the surface. And so it's a call to us to be, to be on guard. If you're truly his, he'll keep you. But we experience that day to day by practical perseverance. So today, am I submitting to his word? Um, am I expressing faith in obedience and submission to him and following him and trusting him? And so um, be on guard um, because there's potential that that could happen to us. Um, be, be on guard. So that's a, that's a good word. But yeah, that's, that's what John's after. That's exactly right. To uh, define for us and show us true versus false faith. Um, so it's really good. Any other thoughts? Questions, comments? John 3, we did it. So it is uh, it's glorious. Be, be chewing on these things and, uh, and worship them. So that's, that's an application. Just worship Christ for this. He's worthy. And worship God in three persons. Um, it's it's mind-blowing and glorious. <coughs> Let me pray. It is uh, 1019. I kept you over. Dear Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for opening our eyes to him. 
Oh, Lord, that we would know his supremacy and live for it. Pray for the unbelievers in our lives, Lord. Do what you have to do for any to come to know you in their hearts. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.